Straw Hut Media. We've come a long way, Pride listeners. Six weeks ago, we started on this journey to better understand the queer history of the United States. Six weeks ago, we were going about business as usual, heading into work, having dinner with friends, waiting in normal-sized lines at the grocery store. Now, things are very different. We began by looking at the many genders in the indigenous nations of pre-colonial America and their persecution by Western explorers. We looked at the first settlers in the original 13 colonies, the founding fathers, homoeroticism in the White House, drag shows in Harlem, and the beginning of the term homosexual. Today is the final part of our six-week series on the queer history of the United States. I'm Levi Chambers, and this is Pride. I hope that throughout this series, you've come to know some of the extraordinary queer people that have lived in the U.S. throughout history. Some brave ones were fighting for gay rights in their own ways long before anyone noticed. I hope you've seen how LGBTQ rights intersect with issues of class and race. Today, we're talking about a pivotal moment in American gay history, the Stonewall Uprising of 1969. Stonewall did not start at all. It changed everything. By now, you probably know his voice. Yes, it's our history guide, Dr. Eric Servini. To understand the significance of Stonewall to gay rights in history and now, we have to start really in 1956. In 1956, queer people had no legal protections in the U.S. We were about 10 years into the Cold War and engaged in a very tense space race with the Soviet Union. We hadn't yet landed on the moon, and the U.S. government was still very afraid of communist infiltration. Meanwhile, a man named Frank Kameny had just earned his Ph.D. in astronomy from Harvard. The following year, he was hired by the government to work for the United States Army Map Service. But a few years earlier, he had had a run-in with the police. He goes to an astronomy conference in San Francisco and enters a restroom in downtown San Francisco And there are two police officers hiding in the ceiling. And that really shows the context of what gays or anyone who was considered sexually deviant at the time had to put up with in the 50s and 60s. Police stings like that were pretty commonplace at the time, especially in San Francisco. Kameny was charged with lewd conduct and loitering and sentenced to six months probation. Frank Kameny had been working for the U.S. Army Map Service for only five months when he was summoned by the Civil Service. They told him they had evidence of him being a homosexual and asked him for comment. Kameny refused, saying it wasn't any concern of the government. And so, of course, he's immediately purged, just like countless other men and women before him. And unlike most people in that position, most people would just kind of quietly say, all right, I don't have this job. I'm going to just quietly walk away and get another job. Unlike them, Frank Kameny sued the government. And he became, this is uh, starting in the late 1950s, he becomes the first openly gay man to take a gay rights case to the Supreme Court. And 
essentially his Supreme Court document was a manifesto for gay pride. The Supreme Court denied his case, and that's when he decided he had to do something. In later interviews, Kameny has said that if he hadn't been fired from his job, he probably wouldn't have become an activist. It was his experience of the government's failure to protect him that radicalized him. And so he starts an organization called the Mattachine Society of Washington. The name Mattachine was a reference to a certain type of medieval French performer. They were men who satirized and criticized the ruling monarchs. And because they wore masks, they were able to get away with it. The first Mattachine Society was founded in Los Angeles in 1950 by Harry Hay, and it was essentially the first major gay rights organization. The first group didn't only demand equality for gay people, it also criticized the U.S. government and capitalism. You have a whole bunch of communists talking about, you know, revolution and how just like workers, homosexuals are an oppressed minority. So Kameny starts his own chapter of the Mattachine Society in Washington, D.C., and starts trying to find other men who had been fired from government jobs for being gay. And keep in mind, if you're fired for being gay in either a private company or in the federal government, then you that record is going to follow you for the rest of your life. So if you want to get another job, then if your prospective employer calls the government and says, hey, why did they leave their job? They'd say, oh, he's a homo or a pervert. Don't hire him. During this time, because he lost his job and is essentially being blacklisted, Kameny is living in poverty. And he's not the only one. So he starts recruiting people to join him and organize the fight for gay liberation. Meanwhile, the FBI is trying to infiltrate this group. There is a 900-page FBI file on the Mattachine Society of Washington. All of this is happening during the 1960s. There were protests against the war in Vietnam, a second wave of feminism, and of course, the civil rights movement. In 1963, 250,000 people gathered in front of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. for the March on Washington, where Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. That march, one of the most significant moments in American history, was organized by a gay man. His name is Bayard Rustin. And even though he was openly gay earlier in his life, and even though the entire civil rights movement knew that he was gay, he was so indispensable and had such logistical prowess that they kept him on even when, you know, Southern Democrats found out that he was gay and exposed him on the Senate floor and the march went on. Eric says that after attending that historic march, gay groups throughout the country started talking for the first time about protesting. Because that was something that had never happened before. A group of homosexuals had never taken to the streets for their rights. But inspired by the Black Freedom Movement and by Rustin's march, you start seeing people in New York, especially Randy Wicker up in New York, saying now is the time to fight. On April 17, 1965, Frank Kameny was one of seven men in suits and three women in dresses who stood on the sidewalk demanding equal rights for LGBTQ people in the first ever gay rights demonstration outside the White House. And he convinces other organizations like the Daughters of Belitis, a lesbian organization, which at first was reluctant, right? Because they say, you know, you have this idea that if we want acceptance as a minority, we need to fit in. We need to prove that we're, you know, not harmful. We're not these like screaming queens or drag queens out on the street. And that marching would be, they thought marching would hurt their cause. 
But Kameny says, no, this is the only way that we are going uh, to get people's attention. Then, on July 4th, 1965, they held the first ever Reminder Day picket. About 40 men and women marched with signs to protest for gay rights. But these pickets, radical as they were at the time, were pretty tame by today's standards. The marches actually had strict rules and a strict dress code. Men wore suits and women wore dresses. Beards were discouraged, signs had to be approved in advance, and lettered neatly. Picketers were not supposed to talk, smoke, or leave. Still, the mere act of participating in a demonstration like the Reminder Day picket was still a very daring act. This march took place every year until 1969. Now, that brings us to New York. Um, A little bit of context. The New York State Liquor Authority, which is the one that grants licenses and, and regulates bars, bans disorderly establishments. But that makes you ask, what is a disorderly establishment? Well, for years, if your bar served gay men, then you were considered to be a disorderly establishment. You were susceptible to being raided and shut down. So in 1966, the Mattachine Society of New York City, a separate chapter from Kameny's DC Mattachine Society, organizes not a sit-in, which is a form of protest you've probably heard about from this era, but instead they organize a sip-in. So they go from bar to bar declaring, I am a homosexual, will you serve me? And one of the bars called Julius's, it's still open, it's still in the village, you can still go in and see exactly where it happened. One of them said, we will not serve you because you're homosexuals and we don't want to lose our license. The Mattachine Society of New York filed suit against Julius's and forced the state liquor authority to make a statement saying that serving homosexual patrons in a bar does not constitute a disorderly establishment. And so at last, they had in writing uh, a confirmation that gays had the right to be served in bars. So why then did the police raid the Stonewall Inn just a few years later? What happened? We'll get to that in a minute after a quick break. Welcome back. Before the break, we talked about Frank Kameny and the beginning of the modern gay rights movement. We talked about inspiration from the civil rights movement. One subtle note Kameny took from the civil rights movement was the phrase, gay is good. Just like the civil rights mantra, black is beautiful, gay is good was a phrase meant to counteract the negative messages constantly coming from the government and society at large. Because the reason people aren't picketing, the reason people aren't suing the federal government, why they're still putting up with these mafia-owned gay bars is because deep down they agree with the rest of society that to be gay was to be immoral or was to be bad. Frank Kameny coined Gay is Good in 1968. The next year, Stonewall. So one misconception about Stonewall is people think, oh, Stonewall, what a great celebrated place. Within the homophile movement, so that's what they called the early gay rights movement, people were increasingly turning against the Stonewall because it was run by the mafia. In fact, 
By the mid-1960s, the Genovese crime family controlled the majority of gay bars and clubs in Greenwich Village. In 1966, one of the Genoveses, Tony Laria, known as Fat Tony, bought the Stonewall Inn. He reopened the club as a gay bar and bribed the police to leave him alone. And so by January 1967, the Stonewall was opened. It was technically a club, a private club, so that it didn't technically fall under the regulations of the state liquor authority. So you would, if you wanted to go to the Stonewall, you would show up. There would be a a register at the front and you would have to write your name. Everyone just put down fake names. Um, And that gained you entrance into this private club. And as soon as it opens, you start seeing gays within the movement saying, you know, how terrible it is. And so one uh, activist, uh, Craig Rodwell, um, who had participated in in Kameny's pickets, he wrote in one of his newsletters, he said, the Stonewall on Christopher Street in Greenwich Village uh, is one of the larger and more financially lucrative of the mafia's gay bars in Manhattan. Rodwell reported that bartenders didn't have running water behind the bar, so they often served drinks in dirty glasses, and he blamed the Stonewall for an outbreak of hepatitis in 1969. The Stonewall had no rear exit, making the front door the only emergency exit, and to top it off, the alcohol served at the bar was watered down and overpriced. The owners and employees blackmailed and extorted wealthier patrons who weren't out. Craig Rodwell made all this public in his newsletter. And for the first time, you see him calling on uh, gays to wield gay power. And in this sense, it was economic power, saying we should be binding together to create our own gay spaces rather than patronizing these mafia-owned bars. In 1969, the queer community was getting fed up with the Stonewall Inn. Then, in the last three weeks of June that year, the NYPD had conducted five different raids against clubs just like the Stonewall. Why were they doing it now? Well, it was the middle of a mayoral election campaign. And historically, harassment of homosexuals always spiked whenever there was a local campaign because it looked good, right? The city could boost its arrest numbers. Um, and one of the officers who was involved in the raid, in the Stonewall raid, later admitted, he said, when they went down and raided bars like the Stonewall, he said, everyone behaved. It was like, we're going down to grab the fags, end quote. The night of June 27th at 1.20 a.m., a group of officers entered the Stonewall Inn. The music was shut off and bright white lights were turned on. And as usual, the officers started demanding identification. And one thing that people really overlook that I think is so crucial to the story of that night is that the police women who attended at as soon as they started looking for identification started performing a second duty they took anyone who was trans so all the trans women they would take them to the bathroom where the police officers examined their genitalia to determine whether or not they had been assigned male or female. And there was a law that said if you were not wearing three items of clothing of your assigned sex, then you were arrested. 
And while this was happening, while there was essentially sexual assault happening, uh, the gay men in the bar are standing in a single file line in one by one, showing their IDs and leaving. Outside the bar, patrons gathered and watched the raid take place. Then the police started dragging out the gender non-conforming patrons and putting them into police vans. But wait, before we go any further, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the gender non-conforming people, the sex workers, the street people living in New York that kick this movement into overdrive. My name is Michelle Esther O'Brien. I'm a scholar living in New York City. Last year, Michelle helped organize Love and Resistance, Stonewall 50 with the New York Public Library, an exhibition and series of programs to educate people about the Stonewall riots. Michelle reminded us that alongside the gay party scene that included Stonewall, there was a culture of police brutality towards people who were visibly queer, people who wouldn't have been able to participate in those reminder day pickets. A working class trans women of color and other people who were working in sex work, often homeless, often struggling with drug addiction, and were really not able to sort of pass in any sort of normal straight homophobic life. And so these people, because they spent a lot of time on the streets, because they were visibly queer, because they were poor and um, often people of color and subject to a lot of police harassment, had a lot less to lose than some of their privileged counterparts and were a lot more willing and able to fight the police when the time came. Michelle says that in the five years leading up to Stonewall, there were 750 riots across the United States. Usually led by poor Black teenagers fed up with police brutality. So while gay men like Frank Kameny organized peaceful marches dressed in suits and dresses, an even more marginalized group of queer people were beginning to fight back. Hard. And these these uh, sort of gender outlaws, as some people have called them, played a really integral glue for the much broader queer community. Like it was their presence that really helped cohere a visible, excessive, uh, accessible queer life for everyone else. Right, their presence in the neighborhood, their presence in a bar, their presence on a stroll meant that everyone knew that that was a queer area and that's where people would gather and meet each other and build community together. It also meant that these people were subject to a lot of harassment and a lot of brutality. That's why, on the night of June 27th, something snapped. Here's Eric. After the crowd gathers outside, they start bringing out the trans patrons and putting them in the police vans. And you start to see the officers, you know, shoving them around. Uh, one of them hits hits an officer with her purse. Um, he hits back with his club. And then there's a moment, there's a lot of disagreement about when exactly it became a riot. But what most eyewitness accounts agree on is that the officers then brought out a patron whom they had identified as a woman, um, at least in their eyes. And this patron was wearing cropped hair, male clothes, and was in handcuffs. Um, the the uh, village voice uh, said that this patron was wearing, this is their terms and their pronouns, fancy go-to bar drag for a butch dyke. So pretty offensive language. 
Um, and they said she, in their words, put up a struggle. Um, and so this patron starts kicking and cursing, screaming and fighting back. And someone else in the audience, um, one witness recalled it being uh, sounding like a female voice, shouted, why don't you guys do something? And then the Village Voice, the newspaper that actually had a reporter there, uh, reported saying it was at this moment that the scene became explosive. Limp wrists were forgotten. Beer cans and bottles were heaved at the windows and a rain of coins descended on the cops. And so you start hearing cries of police brutality, pigs, faggot cops, and the riot begins. And so the officers retreat backwards. They bolt the door of the bar. Uh, The mob manages to somehow uproot a parking meter and use it as a battering ram. Um, An officer is hit by a flying object and the door swings open. Um, The police grab one man. They beat him mercilessly. What a lot of people also don't realize is it was very, very close to being a massacre. Not just a riot, but a massacre. Um, There was a reporter who was actually inside the bar with the police officers. And he reported saying, an arm poured lighter fluid into the room, then threw a match. There was a whoosh of flames, and the officers prepared to shoot, and a massacre seemed imminent. So there could have been a lot of people dead because these officers were terrified. And that's when the fire trucks showed up. They put out the fire and then turned the hoses on the crowd. And for several hours, the trans women, the drag queens, and the street youth, these are sex workers who were working the piers uh, and on 42nd Street, began fighting and taunting the riot police. And, you know, they're singing songs like We Are the Stonewall Girls, Uh, They're getting in chorus lines. They're kicking their heels. And meanwhile, the police officers are are swinging their nightsticks. Um, Witnesses saw people covered in blood getting dragged into police cars. The riots continued the next day. An activist that you may have heard of, Marsha P. Johnson, was there. She miraculously climbed a lamppost in high heels and a very tight-fitting dress and somehow dropped a bag full of bricks onto a police car below, shattering its windshield. The following year, Marsha and Cynthia Rivera founded STAR, Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, to advocate and care for young transgender people. But that night, in 1969, the uprising continued. What I think is so interesting is the Madison Society of of New York, which is different from Frank Kameny's organization, puts up a sign on the Stonewall saying, We homosexuals plead with our people to please help maintain peaceful and quiet conduct on the streets of the village. And so you start to see, all right, these people physically fighting back uh, in mass several days in a row for the first time. Nothing on the scale. There had certainly been acts of resistance and, and, and riots, but nothing on this scale. And... Uh, The poet Allen Ginsberg, in one of my favorite quotes, he actually goes into the Stonewall on Sunday night, dances there, and he comes out and he tells a reporter, you know, the guys there were so beautiful. He said, they've lost that wounded look that fags all had 10 years ago. And because of some of that offensive language from the village voice, they actually come back on Wednesday. uh, And the riots continued. 
The riots went on for five nights. Here's Michelle again. And that uprising was uh, sort of has symbolically become the centerpiece of uh, nationally in how queer people understand the explosion of gay rights organizing, uh, a particularly gay liberation organizing that took place uh, in late 1969 and in 1970, 1971. Michelle says that within two months of Stonewall, there were dozens of gay liberation front organizations in the United States, and then eventually the world. But the first one was in New York. This was a moment that lasted for about three years of very militant uh, gay and queer organizing um, that was fully participated in the revolutionary upsurge across many different movements and communities that were happening at the time. The Gay Liberation Front often mobilized to show up for Black Panther rallies. So the Young Lords, two uh, revolutionary anti-capitalist organizations that were organizing in New York a lot. They did a lot of organizing in defense of the Panther 21, who are 21 members of the Black Panthers who were incarcerated in New York City as political prisoners. Michelle says the Gay Liberation Front really saw itself as part of a global movement to overthrow capitalism and imperialism. It's not an accident that their name was a direct reference to the National Liberation Front of Vietnam, which was the communist army that the United States was fighting in Vietnam. Even though these gay rights groups were aligned with the anti-war, anti-capitalism, and civil rights movements, they weren't always welcomed. Homophobia was everywhere. But thanks to the co-founder of the Black Panther Party, Huey P. Newton, solidarity grew. In 1970, he spoke out. And the Gay Liberation Front was invited by Huey P. Newton of the Black Panthers to join the People's Constitutional Convention that took place in Philadelphia, where they represented the interests of gay rights um, to a broader, multi-issue revolutionary left. Newton's pamphlet was titled, A Letter from Huey to the Revolutionary Brothers and Sisters About the Women's Liberation and Gay Liberation Movements. Part of it read, Whatever your personal opinions and your insecurities about homosexuality and the various liberation movements among homosexuals and women, and I speak of homosexuals and women as oppressed groups, we should try to unite with them in a revolutionary fashion. I mean, there are a lot of elements about the role of people of color, the role of trans women, the role of free people, that um, a lot of uh, really fantastic activists and organizers have lifted up over the last two years as being a crucial part of the legacy of Stonewall. And I, I'm very excited to see the number of people that have written um, very positively about Silver Rivera and Marsha B. Johnson and Miss Major, and they, they deserve all the veneration we can possibly uh, offer them. Today, the Stonewall Inn is a designated national monument. They hold drag shows and have park rangers, but it's not all great. The neighborhood is now too expensive for any normal person to live. And just down the street, queer youth of color are still regularly harassed by the police. And uh, so the bar is a perfectly nice place. I encourage everyone to go visit, chat, chat with the park ranger about its history. And meanwhile, uh, you only have to go a few blocks to see police harassing queer youth of color who were, who were in many ways the direct inheritors of the leading forces of rebellion. In November 1969, 
the Eastern Regional Conference of Homophile Organizations, that's the Eastern Regional Conference of Homophile Organizations, met and decided that instead of that annual reminder where everyone just walked in a circle silently wearing their uh, uh, suits and dresses, they proposed a motion saying, resolved that the annual reminder, in order to be more relevant, reach a greater number of people and encompass the ideas and ideals of the larger struggle in which we are engaged, that our fundamental human rights be moved in time and location. We propose that a demonstration be held annually on the last Saturday in June in New York City to commemorate the 1969 spontaneous demonstrations on Christopher Street, and this demonstration be called Christopher Street Liberation Day. And one of the last-minute amendments made by a member of that Radical Caucus said, no age or dress regulations shall be made for this demonstration. And so, a few months later, on June 28, 1970, the Christopher Street Liberation Day March began. Between five and 10,000 people marched in commemoration of the riots, which Eric says was a sign that at last, this movement that had existed for years, for decades, was opening the doors to everyone. Finally, people recognized that the those who fought back at Stonewall were not the people wearing suits and marching in circles outside of the White House. It was the people most despised in American society. Those with the least to lose were the ones who actually fought back and inspired everyone, no matter what you looked like or how you dressed, to actually march. So this June uh, 2020, I'm actually releasing my book, uh, The Deviant's War, The Homosexual Versus the United States of America, just in time for the 50th anniversary of this very first Pride March. And it tells the full story of Frank Kameny and the Mattachine Society of Washington, including what happened after Stonewall and how he influenced and was influenced by a lot of other groups, including the Black Freedom Movement, uh, the lesbian activism by trans resistance like Sylvia Rivera and her organization, um, and the emergence of some of these other groups like the Gay Activist Alliance, which um, different forms of which uh, continue up until today. Uh, so I think everyone will be really fascinated, hopefully, by the secret history of, of gay rights in America. Can you, so your book is more than 500 pages. Can you tell listeners exactly like what they can expect to learn and experience uh, from reading it? Because I mean, for the last, what, six weeks, we've done this special on the queer history of the U- of the United States. What what can they learn from your, your book? <laughs> so I don't want to scare anyone. It, the, 120 of those pages are endnotes. So you don't have to read those unless you're insane. Um, but uh, so it ends up being closer to around 350 pages. Um, and I mean, I, I was think... super impressed with 500. It's like <laughs> Harry Potter goblet of fire right, level. Right. Uh, yes. So <laughs> it's it's definitely an enjoyable. I try to make it enjoyable to read because I think so much of history is confined in academia and incredible scholars have, you know, been working on this story for a long time, but we don't yet have 
a narrative history that tells us the story of Frank Kameny in the years leading up to Stonewall and how gay pride in its current form, this idea that we need to, as a political strategy, we need to come out and declare that homosexuality is morally good in a public setting, that exists because of Frank Kameny and because of a lot of the other characters in the book, including uh, those who fought at Stonewall, who was able to take his argument, which was essentially a legal thriller. You know, he was fighting against the Pentagon. Uh, There were FBI informants trying to ruin him and ruin anyone who was gay in Washington, D.C. And he was making this argument the entire time, saying that homosexuality was morally good. And at last, because of Stonewall, uh, people finally uh, adopted it expanded it and made it accessible to everyone. is a production of Straw Hut Media. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. Share us with your friends. Subscribe and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Pride. You can follow me at Levi Chambers, and you can find Dr. Eric Cervini at E-R-I-C-C-E-R-V-I-N-I. Pride is produced by me, Levi Chambers, Maggie Bowles, and Ryan Tillotson. Edited by Sebastian Alcala. Special thanks to Michelle Esther O'Brien. She will be back in a couple of weeks to talk more about her work creating a public online archive for interviews with trans New Yorkers. It's called the New York City Trans Oral History Project, and you can find it very easily on Google. Please stay safe, stay healthy, stay home, and listen to podcasts.